Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. Today's episode is unique because we have two interviews. Our first guest this week is Tevi Troy, a prominent presidential historian who was also a staffer. After his undergraduate degree, Tevi came to Washington and worked at the American Enterprise Institute, then decided to go get his PhD at the University of Texas. He then came back to Washington and worked on Capitol Hill for a few years. In 2003, he joined the Bush White House and held several positions over the course of six years. Among them, he served as Deputy Cabinet Secretary and Liaison to the Jewish Community, Deputy Assistant to the President for Domestic Policy, where he ran the DPC, and finally, Deputy Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, where he served as the Chief Operating Officer of the largest civilian department in the federal government. Here's what's unique about Tevi, though. He is also an author of several respected books about the Office of the President and the White House. His most recent is called Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. The National Review called this book juicy as hell. The Wall Street Journal said it was one of the best books of 2020. We dive into some really good stories, and I hope you enjoy them. When I'm done talking with Tevi, because Valentine's Day is coming up, we have a second guest, a special guest, who I'll introduce at the break. But first, let me start by saying, Tevi Troy, welcome to Staffer. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm really excited about this interview, Jim. I am so happy to have you as well, because there are very few uh, staffers who are also historians. So I like to start at the beginning. Um, tell me about growing up in Queens and how you came to fall in love with American history. I did grow up in Queens in the 1970s. And if you went to my parents' house, they no longer have that house. And my mom's no longer with us. But if you go to my parents' house in Queens in the 70s, all you would see would be books. Anyone who came to visit us would remember the Queen's house was just packed with books from the floor to the ceiling. Every bedroom, the family room, the upstairs rooms, the den, there were just books everywhere. And my parents encouraged us to read. I I rarely remember them ever telling me there was a book I couldn't read. There was one book they told my older brothers they couldn't read, Ball Four by Jim Bouton, which told kind of the behind the scenes stories of ball players. Not an unusual type of book today, but back then it was surprising that ballplayers drank and did drugs and caroused on the road. And of course, that was the book my brothers ran to read when the first chance they got. <laughs> so we read all kinds of books, history, fiction. There were conversations around the Friday night dinner table every week about politics and literature and history. My father was a high school history teacher who had actually tried to pursue a PhD, but had a problematic um, teacher or a professor who's his um, his department chair, and he just didn't get through the PhD process, so he became a high school teacher instead. So there was just a love of history in the house my entire growing up period, and, and that's what gave me that interest in history to begin with. So when you went off to college, you went to Cornell, go Big Red, um, and then you got your PhD at the University of Texas. How did you uh, go from getting your PhD in history and being now a, a historian to working in politics, which is what you did right, you know, shortly thereafter. Yeah, it's true. But there was an important intervening step between getting my degree at Cornell and going to get my PhD at University of Texas, which is I moved to Washington for three years. Ah, okay. And in those three years, I worked at the American Enterprise Institute 
And I looked around at the people at the American Enterprise Institute, people like Gene Kirkpatrick and Norm Ornstein. And these folks were people who were very influential in the political and the policy sphere, but they also had gotten advanced degrees. Both of them had PhDs. And I looked at the people who were big shots at the think tank, and it wasn't just them. There's also Ben Wattenberg, who was my Boston mentor. There was Judge Bork. And what I found when I tried to figure out what qualities those people had that allowed them to be successful in this world, I saw that they had three things. Number one was they had some kind of advanced degree. Number two is they had spent some time in government as staffers or principals, but they had had some kind of political jobs in their lives. And number three is they had written some kind of well-received book or article that helped to make their name. And I resolved as a, someone in my young 20s, my early 20s, to go and try and do those three things and thought that that would help me succeed in Washington. Oh, that's fascinating. Just out of curiosity, what uh, what was the article uh, that you sought to to make your be your signature piece at the beginning of your career? Yeah, that was kind of the, the third piece in the step. So the first thing was to get the PhD. And I went to University of Texas at Austin. And one of the reasons I went there was because the LBJ school is there and I was able to cross list a lot of classes with the LBJ school. And in fact, one of my mentors there was a woman named Elspeth Rostow, who was the wife of Walt Rostow, the national security advisor under Kennedy and Johnson. And she was an expert on the presidency and she's no longer with us, unfortunately, but I learned so, so much from her. And then I wrote a dissertation that I intentionally thought I could write or get published as a book. It was called Intellectuals in the American Presidency. And it was about intellectuals who served as staffers in various administrations, including Arthur Schlesinger under Kennedy, Pat Moynihan under Nixon, Martin Anderson under Reagan. And that dissertation did indeed become my first book, Intellectuals and the American Presidency. So that's the answer to your question. That first book that grew out of my dissertation was the book that I thought would kind of establish me as someone who writes seriously about these issues. Well, I would love to talk to you about that book as well, in addition to some of your other works. But the book I really want to talk about with you today is Fight House, which the Wall Street Journal called one of the best books of 2020. Why did you write this book? Around 2016, 2017, you were reading all the stuff about fighting in Trump world, both at the campaign and then later when Trump became president. And the way the media covered it in this breathless way, they said it's unprecedented. There's never been fighting like this, fighting out, out of control. And I'm a presidential historian. When I hear someone say unprecedented, I go and look for precedents. And I intentionally went around and said, well, have there been fights in other administrations? And what are the nature of those fights? And does the president have something to do with the fights? Is it something out of his or her control? And what I did, and this, and I'm someone who's worked in the White House and has studied the presidency for most of my adult life, I decided to look into this question and I could not believe the amount and level of number of fights that I hadn't even been aware of. Every single presidency that I studied, I went from Truman on, because that's really the beginning of a full-time White House staff, from Truman on, has been riven by conflict. There's always internal conflict in the White House and unbelievably great stories of the petty, nasty things people would do to one another uh, who are their antagonists in that internal debate. So if the Trump White House has the reputation of being particularly combative, uh, if that's not true, what you know, White House or White Houses are, would you put in the same category? Well, hold on. I wouldn't say it's not true that the Trump White House was particularly combative. It absolutely was. 
The question is, was it unprecedented? And I would say it was not unprecedented to have a White House that was filled with a lot of fighting. So who, the, so who was close? Right. So the, the, the kind of Hall of Fame White House when it comes to fighting, in my analysis, was the Ford administration. People are always shocked by that answer. 895 days, relatively short presidency because he comes in uh, to replace Nixon and he loses uh, re-election to Carter. And constant fighting throughout that administration. The Nixon people were fighting the Ford people. The Ford people were fighting each other. They were embattled the whole time. Ford had this guy named Bob Hartman, who had been his chief of staff as vice president, but he really wasn't a chief of staff. In fact, they had to hire a, a special, different administrative person to handle the administrative duties that Hartman couldn't handle. He was really a writer, a former journalist, and, and a decent speechwriter. And he comes in to the Ford White House, and he, he, they know he can't be chief of staff, and he's not chief of staff, but he is an agent of chaos. And he sets himself up in the ante room outside the Oval Office, and he kind of commandeers the presidential inbox. If somebody puts something in the inbox that he doesn't like, he removes it from the inbox and leaks it to Evans and Novak, the political columnists. <laughs> and if he wants something to go forward through the process, he takes it, circumvents the staffing process, and just shoves it into the inbox. So here was a guy who was really a bad actor internally, and he was at the heart of many of the fights, although not all of them, in the Ford administration. And so the, the nature of these fights, um, you know, in your in your studying of them, could you trace a lot of them to a particular bad actor, or were these, you know, just a lot of alpha people all in the same? place in, you know, when the stakes couldn't be higher? Or were there kind of institutional rivalries within the White House that kept butting up against one another? Can I say all of the above on that? Sometimes there are bad actors like Hartman. Sometimes, in fact, often, maybe always, you have these alpha males and alpha females in high stakes positions in a very tight quarters where the stakes are really, really matter. And then the third, there are certain structural things that tend to lead to more fights. So, for example, the National Security Advisor and the, and the Secretary of State, they often get involved in conflict. They often fight with each other. That doesn't mean they always do. Sometimes they get along well. But it is a particular point of contention because the se- Secretary of State thinks that that person should be in charge of all foreign policy decisions. And the National Security Advisor, who is next to the president, isn't six blocks away, like in Foggy Bottom, that person thinks they should be in charge of foreign policy decisions. And it's kind of an, a constant place of conflict. And if you look at my book, Fight House, you'll see in multiple chapters, we talk about the tensions and the fights between the Secretary of State and the National Security Advisor. You know, one of the Secretaries of State uh, that's in the book is Al Haig. Can you describe some of the challenges he had with the White House staff? Al Haig, that guy, he was something else. You know, I got to get back to Ford for one second because he was briefly chief of staff under Ford. And he, 35 years later, he's interviewed for the oral archive history at the Miller Center. And the interviewer was Richard Norton Smith. And he said, 35 years later, Al Haig would still get red-faced and sputtering mad over just the mention of the name Bob Hartman. So sometimes (laughs) these fights really have long-lasting implications where people just don't ever get over them. But when Haig is Secretary of State, and again, there's someone who's been a four-star general 
and chief of staff in the White House. So he really thinks that he, he's got it going on and that he should be the vicar. That was his word, vicar, V-I-C-A-R, vicar of foreign policy. And the Reagan people don't have any great love for him. And in fact, Nancy Reagan doesn't think much of him. And in particular, Jim Baker, who's the chief of staff, and Mike Deaver, who's the deputy chief of staff, really don't like him. And they try to keep him off Air Force One, off Marine One, out of the presidential motorcades, and even to keep him out of the hotel that the president stays at on foreign trips. And Haig is irate. And he complains. He says, first of all, he says, what am I, a leper? And then he complains about the so-called gorillas in the White House who are out to get him. So Mike Deaver, 43-year-old, deputy chief of staff to the White House, dresses up in a gorilla suit in the White House and makes fun of Haig. That I just find astounding. As a, as a former staffer, I just could not imagine it, especially in these days of cell phone cameras and Twitter and social media. It's really unbelievable and, and unimaginable. But even that someone would do this in the 1980s really strikes me as crazy. You know, uh, speaking of this kind of the national security apparatus, et cetera, Kissinger uh, was quite an operator and, and night fighter internally. Um, can you tell us about his experience? Oh, my gosh, yes. And Kissinger, he was out of control. He may be in the bureaucratic knife fighting Hall of Fame. We think of Kissinger as this kind of old Buddha-like guy with a Germanic accent who pronounces on TV occasionally about uh, his, his foreign policy genius. But Kissinger in the late 60s, early 70s, was a much younger guy. He was kind of uh, thin-skinned, and he was also nervous about his own position. He was a former Rockefeller guy in a Nixon administration that didn't necessarily like Rockefeller. He had this Germanic accent at a time when we had not that long ago fought not only one, but two wars against Germany. So Germans weren't so popular. He was Jewish in a position that had never had a Jewish national security advisor before. And Nixon was prone to make anti-Semitic comments. In fact, there's one story I have in the book that Kissinger is at a national security meeting. The subject of Israel comes up. Kissinger makes some relatively innocuous point about Israel. And Nixon says, can we now hear the American point of view, Henry? Just an astounding comment. So Kissinger is very nervous about his own position, uh, very just uh, on edge. And the Secretary of State is William Rogers, this patrician, former attorney general, guy who knows Nixon for 20 years, close friends with Nixon. And Kissinger just constantly feels like he's on the bottom end of this relationship. And he's trying to outmaneuver Rogers constantly. And we think about this, who's heard of William Rogers? But everybody's heard of Kissinger. We think of Kissinger as the alpha in this relationship. But Kissinger did not see himself as the alpha in this relationship. And he's constantly trying to find ways to push Rogers out of the process or outmaneuver him. Or make him look bad in front of Nixon. One of my favorite stories from the book is that Kissinger, believe it or not, was quite the ladies' man. And at one point, he's dating the attractive Bond actress, Jill St. John. And it shows up in the newspapers that Kissinger is dating this woman. Not a shock to us today, right? A a big shot in the White House dating a Hollywood actress is something we've seen in multiple administrations. But Kissinger dating her is, is a big deal. It shows up in the press. And Kissinger goes to Nixon to complain that his rival, Secretary of State Rogers, has leaked this information to the press. That's why it's appearing in the press. And the truth is that Kissinger leaked the information (laughs) for two reasons. One is, you know, you're dating Jill St. John, you want people to know it. 
But two is he wanted Rogers to look bad in front of Nixon. And the way to make someone look bad in front of Nixon was to accuse them of being a leaker. As we all know, Nixon hated leaks. And in fact, the group, the plumbers, was so designated because they were assigned to root out leaks. Now, what we know today is that they didn't root out leaks so much as they destroyed the Nixon presidency. But that's how much Nixon hated leaks, that he was willing to empower this group that ended up destroying his presidency. Incredible. Um, you know, Of the presidents that you look at, and you look at a lot of them, 13, how much you know, are they responsible for you know, creating environments where this happens or not applying a, you know, a managerial style to minimize perhaps something that's impossible to eliminate. So who's their best and worst? So that's two, two different questions. Let me answer the first one first, which is that there's always going to be fighting in the White House. A president cannot eliminate fighting. They can only manage it. But in the book, in Fight House, I lay out three levers that presidents have for managing. Number one is ideological alignment. If you have a staff that's relatively aligned ideologically, they're going to be less likely to infight, backstab, leak, and just generally go after each other. Number two is process. All good staffers know about process. There is a way that you present information to the principal. There's a way that decisions get made. There are certain people who are supposed to be invited to meetings. You go through that process. And if it's a clean, tight process, then people feel, even if they lost their issue at the end of the day, at least they had their hearing. At least the president heard what their perspective was and made a decision. Didn't go against them, but they can live to fight another day or live to argue another day in a process that gives them an opportunity to make their voices heard. And then the third is presidential tolerance. What do I mean by this? If a president says, I don't want to see this behavior and is willing to fire or call people out for it, then you're going to have less infighting. Barack Obama famously had the no drama Obama approach. It doesn't mean there was no fighting in the Obama White House. And I lay out some fights in White House. But he made it clear to staffers that he didn't want to see it. And he really would call people on the carpet if they engaged in that behavior. And that leads to less of it. Uh, the previous president, or, or most recent president, for example, was not of that category at all. He said at one point, I like conflict. And there's another story that I have in the book where there's a argument on Trump Force One. So this is back before he's president during the campaign. And A.J. Delgado and Hope Hicks are flanking him on either side and screaming at each other. And Trump is reading the New York Times. I know he says he doesn't read it, but he does. And he, in the middle of this argument, puts down the newspaper, yells, cat fight, and then lifts the paper back up again and continues reading. Now, there's a president who's willing to tolerate conflict, if not even encourage it. So I think the different presidential attitudes, the way they set up their White House, how much division there is, and whether they have a clean type price or process, those things are going to determine how much fighting there is and whether it's managed. In terms of your second question, who was best at it and who was worst at it, I would argue that the Ford White House may have been the worst at managing conflict, not because Ford liked conflict, but he may have been too nice a guy to deal with conflict. He really wasn't someone who was going to call people out on the carpet. This guy Hartman, who I mentioned earlier, who was a problem, was good friends with Ford. There was no chance that Ford was going to get rid of him. The process was messed up because, as I said, Hartman would uh, throw himself into it and mess up the presidential inbox, which was really the culmination of the process, right? Only something 
that goes through the process in an appropriate way should end up in the presidential inbox. And then an ideology. Ford didn't really know what he believed. In fact, uh, for his 76 campaign, they were trying to talk about ideas. And he said, what do you believe in? And he said something like, I like people. Well, you know, that's not really a program. And so there was ideological division in that the staffers didn't know what the president wanted. So they were trying to put their own perspectives in. And I think that sometimes led to more conflict. So I'd say the Ford administration was probably the worst. Uh, in terms of the best at it, I got to give some points to the Reagan administration because uh, Reagan definitely had ideological division between the conservatives and the moderates in his administration. But he kind of knew how to bring both of those sides in with Baker, who was the chief of staff, who I mentioned earlier, and was the kind of leader of the moderates or the pragmatists. And Meese, Ed Meese, was the counselor of the president, wanted to be chief of staff, but didn't get that job. He was the leader of the conservatives. And I think what you got from Reagan was a conservative administration that was willing to make pragmatic compromises to get things done. And so there was definitely disagreements in the Reagan White House, but I think they, they managed it in an appropriate way. Uh, let me be bipartisan on this and also give some props to Bill Clinton. His first two years were kind of messy and they tacked further to the left than Clinton sold himself as, at, as in the 1992 campaign. But after the 94 election, when Clinton loses both the House and the Senate the first time in two generations that the Democrats had lost control of both houses, then he decides to try and tack back to the center and he brings in this secret aide called Charlie, who is giving him advice from the outside. Charlie turns out to be Dick Morris, and he and Stephanopoulos, George Stephanopoulos, who is one of the chief of the liberals uh, in the Clinton White House, uh, they hate each other. They go out after each other, hammer, hammer and tongs. There's a lot of fighting. But at the end, Stephanopoulos determined that it was just Clinton being Clinton. And by bringing the two of them with their different perspectives, he was able to get the most out of the staff and get the results he needed. And Clinton did indeed tack back to the center and successfully win re-election in 96. And let me ask you about the administration in which you served in many roles, uh, President George W. Bush. What was that White House like um, since you were you saw it you know, up close and personal? Yeah, it was divided in a way in that the domestic policy team on which I worked, and I'm not just saying this because I worked on that team, but I have in the book validation from other sources, including journalists and historians and, and other staffers. The domestic policy team got along pretty well, and President Bush had a clean, tight process. There was ideological alignment on this compassionate conservatism idea. And for the most part, Bush said he didn't want to see conflict, and he was you know, he was a Harvard MBA, uh, the first MBA president. He kind of uh, believed in the Drucker, the Peter Drucker principles of management. And I think they, they had a relatively effectively run domestic policy operation in the Bush White House. And in fact, the press used to complain about the dearth of leaks from the Bush White House. On the foreign policy side, however, it was much messier. You had these big, big folks, kind of 800-pound gorillas in terms of Powell and Rumsfeld and Cheney and Secretary Rice, Condoleezza Rice, was the national security advisor, and she was trying to control these big egos and these big reputations. And it was just much harder to do. And the foreign policy side was much more dysfunctional, much more driven by infighting and, and by leaks. So I think I would say I saw both sides of it. And Bush was aware of it. I was in a cabinet meeting once where Bush made some point 
that both Powell and Rumsfeld agreed to. And he made a joke. He said, see, who says they can't get along? So Bush knew that there was there was fighting there and that there was disagreement that the press wrote about it. But he tried to handle it in a, uh, by kind of dispelling it with humor. So having worked in the White House and studied many White Houses, there are a lot of people today who are new to the White House. What advice would you give um, to one of the staffers who are heading in there today? When I went to the Bush White House, I called a friend who had worked in the Clinton White House and I asked him for advice. And he gave me three words of advice that I actually put in the book. Watch your back. It is a rivalrous place. There's lots of petty jealousies. People will think that uh, you're, you're a danger to them in some way. And so you've got to be really careful. That said, you also, you're in a foxhole with people and you can build relationships that will not only have to survive difficulties inside the White House, but also will last the test of time. I some of my closest friends are still colleagues from my Bush White House days. So I think you've got to watch your back, but also really try to find ways to develop trusting relationships with people. And uh, it's, it's not always easy to do, I would say. Now, you also served as deputy secretary at HHS, which has 67,000 employees and is the federal government's largest civilian workforce. Did you observe some of the same tensions, rivalries, antagonism at the highest levels of HHS that you saw at the White House? Or is the White House unique in that way? There was definitely rivalries and antagonisms at the agencies. I just think in some ways, well, it's definitely less high profile. And I think that uh, if a secretary wants to get rid of someone, I think maybe it's a little easier. It's not going to show up in the papers as much. Uh, I think you you kind of have more administrative responsibilities in an agency. You've got, you've got to worry about managing your large career staff. There's at the, when I was there. There's now more, but when I was there, there were 67,000 employees. As you said, but there's only a hundred political appointees, and you just have so much more to deal with. Whereas at the White House, everybody you deal with is a political, and so the the fights you're going to have are with other politicals. And I, so I just think it's 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 not surprising that you see more of this inside the White House. My last question for you: Was there any story that you really loved, but it just didn't make it into the book, but you wish could have made it into the book? Yeah, there is a great story that I wish I had put in the book, or had been able to make the book, especially now since this person is uh, relevant in, in the Biden White House. But Richard Holbrook, when he was uh, he was always getting involved in fights. He's a kind of legendary Democratic foreign policy staffer. And at one point, he's at a meeting in the Clinton administration. This is when Madeleine Albright is the Secretary of State. And he's the U.S. representative of the U.N. And he's in a meeting with other State Department officials, including a very young Susan Rice, who is the Assistant Secretary, I believe, for African Affairs at the time. And she was very young, which is relevant because Holbrook had also been a very young Assistant Secretary of State at, at the State Department. And he makes some very condescending comment to her when she says something about, well, you know, I too know about being one of the youngest assistant secretaries of state in just a very dismissive, condescending way. And she sits there and the audience can't see this, but you'll see what I'm doing. She slowly unfolds her middle finger and lifts, <laughs> flips the bird at Holbrook in this meeting. 
<laughs> and after the meeting, she calls up Madeleine Albright, the Secretary of State, and somewhat sheepishly tells her that, I'm sorry to tell you, Madam Secretary, that I flipped the bird at a member of the president's cabinet because this is the UN, U.S. representative of the U.N. and that administration sat in the cabinet. And she explains the story and Madeleine Albright says to her, good for you. <laughs> she also knew what a difficult person Holbrook was. So it's, it's a great story, but uh, it just didn't make the book. I love it. So, Tevi, I have uh, a couple of questions that I, I like to ask on a recurring basis. One of them is Staffer Hall of Fame. If I were able to raise the money to build a Hall of Fame to staffers and put it on the National Mall, who should be in that Hall of Fame? And ideally, this is someone who you've worked with, who you saw, you know, day to day and really admire them. I would have to give this award to Jay Lefkowitz. Jay Lefkowitz was deputy assistant to the president for domestic policy in the Bush administration. He also was in the cabinet affairs office in the George H.W. Bush administration. And Jay was just so on top of everything. Everybody in the White House looked to him for answers. The president really admired him. And he had this quality of making himself indispensable. And I think that is really something that all staffers should aspire to. You want to make yourself indispensable. You don't want to be elbowing people out of the way and be rude and engage in some of the behaviors I talk about in Fight House. But you want to be in the room because you're needed in the room, not because you elbowed your way into the room. Oh, that's really good. Um, and my my next question is called Across the Aisle. Who's someone who you have admired um, you know, from the other party? Tom Kahn was the the staff director at the House Budget Committee, uh, sometimes minority staff director, sometimes majority staff director, but he was the staff director in the Budget Committee for decades. The guy really cares about policy. He has good relationships on both sides of the aisle. He had great relationships with not only the member he worked for, which was mostly John Spratt from South Carolina, but others as well, but uh, other congressmen in the Republican Party, even though he's a Democrat, many in the Democratic Party. And he just was somebody who people look to because he spoke with authority. He knew what he was talking about. He had his facts right. He treated everybody with respect. And I would really, I, I admire him tremendously. I uh, I don't know Jay, but I do know Tom Kahn, and I agree with you completely. Um, one of th- That last bit about his graciousness and his kindness to everyone, he was already an elevated staffer when I uh, started working on the House side, and I didn't know anything about the budget. Tom would take the you know the time to explain budget process and numbers to anyone. Uh, obviously, the members relied on him, but so did staff, uh, including junior staff. And he was always kind enough to to give that time and expertise. Yeah, you know, I, I would also want to nominate him for the Staffer Hall of Fame as well. So let's do it. Yeah, you know what? You're a baseball fan. You get two votes. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> you bet. The book is Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. Tevi Troy, thank you so much for being our guest today on Staffer. Thank you. I was happy to do it. Okay, everyone, slight change in our usual programming. This weekend is Valentine's Day, and we all know that politics has created many famous couples. James Carville and Mary Madeline, Kellyanne and George Conway. And on Capitol Hill, Senator Schumer's office has by itself led to many happy marriages. Well, I'm no fool. So this Valentine's Day, I'm going to interview my personal favorite staffer of all time, a 17-year veteran of the House of Representatives, and my wife, Katie Papa. 
She was scheduler to Congresswoman Nita Lowy for four years. And after that, she has been a shared employee among many offices as their financial administrator, managing their operational budget and payroll. It pleases me to no end to be able to say, Katie Papa, welcome to Staffer. Oh, finally. <laughs> finally, folks. It's been a long time coming. It has been. You know, we save the best for the moments Middle. in the calendar <laughs> when, <they're, laughs> when the interest is peaked. Oh, okay. And Valentine's Day, you know, the demand from our listeners was please have Katie Papa. Oh, good. Good. Well, here I am. So, all right. Um, I said in our intro, kind of the, the jobs that you've held on Capitol Hill, but can you explain a little further exactly what it is you do for congressional offices? Currently? Currently. Um, I am what's known as a shared financial administrator, which is a relatively new position on Capitol Hill. Um, in the last, I'd say, 20 years or so, it's become a job. In the past, um, schedulers would manage the office's congressional budget, also known as the member's representational allowance, and the payroll and sort of oversee office management aspects. Um, but schedulers have become younger and more transient on the Hill. They tend to be younger staff who are there for a couple years versus it used to always be like a kind old lady that was there forever. Um, We've become those kind old people. I know. I'm now the kind old lady. Well, I'm not kind, but the old lady <laughs> in the office. And... Um, and so they, this position cropped up where this is what you do specifically. So that person isn't leaving your office every couple of years and you're having to retrain somebody how to do the budget and all of that. So I help um, offices. I guide them through with their spending. The largest part of any member's budget is payroll. And so it's largely uh, dealing with payroll, but also how they um, approach spending for franked mail. There's a lot of rules and uh, restrictions on the Hill. And so I help them manage all of that. And so you started on the Hill as Nita Lowy's scheduler. Mm -hmm. um, what was that like? It was great. I loved it. Um, I had a whole other career before I came to the Hill. I was a pharmaceutical rep, um, which was at the time a job that a lot of people wanted. It was sort of the height of the pharmaceutical industry, but I hated it and I was not suited, I think, for sales. Um, and I really wanted to change my career. And it was shortly after we got married, you actually brought to my attention that um, Congresswoman Anita Lowy, who attended the same college that I did, um, Mount, Holyoke. Mount Holyoke College, um, had an opening. And I was always really interested in her and working for her potentially. And I sent my resume over to be her scheduler. I sent one resume to the Hill, which I think is kind of unique. And they hired me. They totally took a chance on me. I had no idea what I was doing. And it was a little scary for the first couple months, but I ended up really, really loving that job. So one of the first pieces of advice I got as a staffer on the Hill was make sure the scheduler likes you. Mm -hmm, for um, sure. Which makes sense. They're the gatekeeper. They you know, um, can decide what gets in front of the member and what doesn't, both in terms of materials and people and priorities. So what is a good way for a staffer to make sure they don't get on the scheduler's bad side? That is a really good piece of advice. The scheduler really makes the office run. Um, actually, all staff make the hill run. Um, that's a little known secret to non-hill people that staff really make 
makes the whole thing go. Um, but for somebody ought to do a podcast on that. I know. Well, that would be you really awesome. need to focus on that. Um, the I think in order to get on the scheduler's good side, the key thing is communication. The scheduler is trying to keep a lot of different balls in the air at all times. And from my own experience and from what I've observed, a lot of times staff will kind of come from the other, from the back office, will be completely unaware of the member's chaotic schedule and sort of drop a bomb in the scheduler's lap. Um, the scheduler is also having to keep an eye on the house floor and votes and the unpredictable nature of the house floor day to day. So it's a lot to keep in the air. So I just think communicating, don't just come in and say, I need X time with the member. I need this interview. Um, you want to come to the scheduler mindful of that, but also with solutions. Ha look at the schedule before you go talk to her. Have an idea of where you could maybe find some time. Um, be helpful to them because it is one of the hardest jobs in the office. It is also thankless when the schedule gets completely screwed up. Everybody knows it. Everybody feels it. But when it goes really well, it's almost like nobody knows it, notices it and you don't get any thanks. It's just that's your job and that's what it's supposed to be. So be nice to them. So what is the best piece of advice for being a staffer that you've ever received? That I've ever received? Um, I think the best advice I've ever been given, and it, it's advice I give today, probably on a daily basis, and it's be a problem solver. Be solutions oriented. Um, try to figure things out before you start asking a lot of questions. I mean, obviously ask questions. And at the beginning of your job or tenure on the Hill, there is no such thing as a dumb question, but you really wanna show that you have the ability to approach a problem and try to fix it on your own or come up with solutions or make some phone calls or send some emails before you start sort of throwing your hands up in the air and acting like you don't know what to do. Um, I encounter that daily um, and it is probably my biggest frustration at, in my job. And it's also something that we tell our kids all the time, like be a problem solver. It is an extremely useful tool for any job. Hopefully lunch is being prepared. Hopefully. Without injury downstairs. Yeah, I right know. Now. I know. Um, what about screw-ups, which is one of my favorite uh, <laughs> questions. Give me an example of a time you really screwed up at work and what you learned from it. Um, well, I didn't screw up very often. Oh, of course. <laughs> um, one that really stands out, and probably because I think it ended with me in tears, was... Um, which is not unusual. It was towards the beginning of my time with Congresswoman Lowy when I was scheduling. And I um, forgot to put Holocaust Remembrance Day and like an event that was taking place in the middle of the day in the Capitol Rotunda on her schedule. And it was in the middle of like busy appropriations, hearing times, and it just, it slipped past me. But Mrs. Lowy being a Jewish member of Congress, that was a very important thing for her to attend. And when somebody pointed it out to her or she noticed, she, you know, I think told that person I wasn't having a good day. And she wasn't a yeller. She just recently retired and she's a wonderful woman, um, but she isn't a yeller. And so when I did see her, she came and she said, you know, not your best day. 
but you'll do better next time. In that way that like a grandparent or a parent makes you feel like they're disappointed in you. Yeah. And, you know, I I still remember it because I, you know, it made me feel awful. Um, but I tried not to screw up a lot. You know, I, I don't know. Maybe I don't remember all my screw ups. <laughs> We've all been there. <laughs> We've all been there. Um, my last question for you because of your unique role, you often are one of the first people that a newly elected member and their staff comes into contact with because you help them set up their offices, including their district offices, et cetera. You're also one of the last staffers that members and congressional staff see when a member either loses uh, re-election or goes for higher office or just retires. What, it, uh, what would you say to a brand new staffer starting in public service so that they are happy on their last day of public service? Um, I mean, I think when you're starting, and I'm, I'm actually helping a new member open an office right now, and it's a lot. Um, it's just a huge amount of work to get a DC office open and open and your district office is open. And I don't think people realize that. Members are sworn in and they're expected to start working immediately. There's no time to, okay, now you've got some time to get set up. You kind of have to hit the ground running. Um, I think it's a sprint for the first six or nine months, maybe even the first year. And it's very overwhelming. It You're working late and you're trying to figure out the hill and all its weirdness and all of its rules and you want to do such a great job for your member. And I think you might have the thought, and I think members have this thought too early on, which is like, what did I get myself into? What am I doing here? This is also foreign and, it, you know, did I make the right decision? And I would say that either when you leave on your last day of an employment with that member or when you're closing an office down, what I would say is it's all worth it. It's like all of the hardship at the beginning and all the work you have to put in to get it all up and running. It's so worth it at the end because you are doing such good, meaningful work. You are learning a skill set that is completely invaluable. You could take that skill. I believe I can do anything having worked in a Hill office. Um, you just learn how to like manage your way through a ton of different situations and you build bonds with your colleagues and the member that are really remarkable you are in a small group there's about 10 of you probably in an office and you just go through so many ups and downs and things together i mean i worked in an office for 17 years and i just closed it and i watched people you know come right out of college and get married and have kids and grow up and you just become so bonded and it's a really special, unique environment. So I would just say if it seems hard at the beginning, you've done the right thing, you're in the right place and it will all pay off. It's really well said. Uh, it's a beautiful answer. Thank you very We're much. Done? This is it. I, maybe this is where we go with witty banter. I don't know. This doesn't <laughs> feel like I've been given enough attention. <laughs> Well, I have an announcement to make about our next several episodes. What? Oh, me? Yeah, Katie Papa all the time. Great. Like a like a fun like segment. Yeah, right. More than just a segment. Okay. <laughs>
Well, hopefully I'm asked back. I've been trying to get on this podcast for a while. <laughs> well, you're not alone. People are clamoring. So I thought you were going to ask me about um, the members on the elevator. Oh, okay. Right. This is a point of disagreement. Yeah. Katie, Papa, should staff take the member elevator? The members on the elevator. So now, just for background for everybody, there is in every bank of elevators and sometimes whole banks of elevators at certain times of day are for members only. Now, we've had this debate for a while. And I will say this. My answer has changed since January 6th. Now I would not get on a member elevator because I wouldn't want to make members uncomfortable or nervous. And people have been a little skittish since then. But before that, yes, I had no problem riding a member on the elevator. I'm a busy lady. <laughs> that was the wrong answer. They go fa- They go faster than the other elevators, which yeah. is why mm-hmm. they're desirous, just so people know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jim's such a rule follower, people. Hey, hey. <laughs> the sons are there for a reason. <laughs> All right. Thank you. You're welcome. I love you. Thank you. I love you, too. Okay, everyone, I hear the gavel pounding this meeting to a close, which means this episode of Staffer is adjourned. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn.